the interesting part is that none of us knew each other <laughs> up front. You just like became yeah, no. a podcast crew. And the best domain. Beam Radio. Beam Rad. <laughs> All righty then. Uh, Alex, do you have uh, an intro spiel? I do not. But to be honest, I have I haven't recorded an episode in like six weeks or listened to one mm. forever. What's up everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome back to Beam Radio. I'm Lars Wikman and I am joined today by my Fellow co-host Alex Kutmus. Howdy, howdy. It's been a while, Alex. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. And we are also joined by a special guest. But before we get into that, I just want to quickly shout out our sponsors. Groxio, Career Fuel for Programmers. Bruce was a little bit under the weather today, so we'll not get an update from him. Um, I'll also shout out my own business, underyud.io. If you are looking to recruit Elixir developers, or if you are an Elixir CTO looking for a peer group, I have some things to offer. Uh, so underyud.io, uh, or reach out to me specifically. That's all fine. Now, this episode, we are getting into security. So... It's my pleasure to introduce our guest, Michael. And I'm going to try Lubas. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate being able to come on here. It's our pleasure. And our first question is always about how did you get started with Elixir and the Beam? And I figure we'll, we'll start there. Introduce yourself a little bit to the people they want to know. Hey, yeah. So my name is Michael Lubis. I'm the founder of Praxial.io. It's an Elixir-focused security company. The way I got started with Elixir was a few years ago. I was working professionally as a security engineer, and I, I was working professionally as a security engineer, and I got a job at a company that was using Elixir on the backend, Frame.io. And that was on the security team, but the whole backend, you know, was written in Elixir. So I decided this is an interesting new language. It seems like there's all of these interesting properties. It was created by, you know, Jose who'd worked on Rails before. So it seemed just from my limited perspective at the time, kind of like a next evolution or an advancement in web development. So that's what got me interested in the language and Learning it has been just a really fantastic experience, you know, on top of being able to get involved in the community. Cool. What kinds of uh, languages were you using prior to learning Elixir? So if you work in information security, the standard languages, usually everyone knows Python. That's sort of the standard for writing scripts or if you're writing like exploits or things like that, it's just usually Python, um, but you, you see all sorts of languages. Um, C and C++ are more popular if you're kind of in like embedded or exploitation, um, but there's also like Ruby on Rails. Uh, Go has seen a lot of popularity now with uh, like Kubernetes and stuff, um, but I was mostly just doing Python um, and Ruby at the time. And then, you know, learning Elixir, it's people think like, oh, it's 
it's like Ruby, but then you learn it a little more and it's, it's definitely deeper than that. Are there any things that you miss from Python in Elixir? Or are you, are you very happy with that switch from Python to Elixir and there's absolutely I, nothing to miss? I do not miss the build system or getting projects set up at all. That was probably my, my favorite thing when I like set up my first Elixir project. I was surprised by how, you know, not only easy it was, but how well designed everything was. I'm going to say I have the same exact issues. Every time I have to touch like virtual env or, or like try to override the operating systems version of Python with like a local projects version of Python, I cry every time, guaranteed. <laughs> there was a, one of my coworkers requested a reformat of his entire laptop. He did machine learning work, but he said his Python environment was just too, like he just needed a new start to it. <laughs> nuke and pave, nuke and pave. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, Python has that challenge, especially with being sort of embedded in the OS that you can really, it can get really, really messy. Uh, and I also think like there are structures for like, this is a properly formatted Python project. If you're going to do a Python package, something that's distributed for pip and stuff, but there's only loose conventions about really how to ship Python in my experience. It's like, yeah, there's going to be a script somewhere. That's the first thing you run. Well, in Elixir, it's like, yeah, it's a mix project. So it has project file and it has all this stuff. You do mix new when you get a mix project or you do a Phoenix generator to get a Phoenix project, but it's fundamentally mix project. There's a structure in place. There's a plan. Someone thought about it a bit. Yeah, and it's not to criticize Python too much because the language has been very successful in the goal that its designer set out, which was really popularity and getting yeah. people you know, able to program. It has been very good at that. I would say Elixir definitely shines in, you know, if you're doing software development and you need tooling and things that are well-designed, you know, managing dependencies, tests and things, it's just, they really nailed it, I think, with Elixir. Yeah, and Python's design is like bring your own because we're we're trying to solve scripting here mostly, and and it also predates that type of tooling to some extent. Exactly. Yeah. But you're saying you're an Elixir-focused security company. That's really specific. How does that work? So when I was working at my you know security engineer job there were things that we would go to vendors for, you know, like defending against bot attacks or vulnerability management. And every vendor, well, you know, think about the structure of like cybersecurity markets a little bit. Um, the way that most companies work is you raise a lot of venture capital money. So, you know, the investors of that want big returns. So they're going to target enterprises, um, you know, like Java, Python, you know, just like big companies to land these deals. So most vendors have sort of a suite of products. Um, and then each of those products has like integrations for various languages, but you can kind of imagine it just, it sort of spreads everything very thinly. You know, the documentation is for everything, but there's obviously differences between like a Python agent and a Java agent. So my goal with Praxial was to create a company whose products we're just focused on one language, Elixir, because I think it really benefits the customer. So when people talk to us about 
you know, their environment, how they're setting up the project. It just, it's much better because like we all know Elixir, we're all kind of speaking the same language. Um, the company itself is also bootstrapped. So we don't really have any plans to do fundraising. Um, and the reason is, you know, investors, they want to dump money into the company and, you know, target as much stuff as possible, but we want to stay focused on Elixir. So being bootstrapped definitely supports that goal. And we've seen it pay off very well for the customers that are using us. That's great to hear. It's also nice that it's Elixir focused because uh, one of my follow-up questions was, are you going to release other clients? But it sounds like that is not on the table at the moment <laughs> for other languages. That's a very frequent question. Yeah, you know, you can't predict the future. I will say that staying focused on Elixir, both from like a customer perspective and a business perspective, it's paid off very well for us. Oh, come on. You need more clients like Erlang, Gleam, LSE, <laughs> Aramol. It's like, want the whole beam here. That would be nice. Yeah, like the beam, because we're already on Elixir. So it's like we're, we've made some progress in that area. I think it's it's a smart thing to be to be focused, uh, especially starting out as a sort of small business and getting it getting it going on your own. So, what does the offering look like? Like, what does the what does Paraxial bring to a, an Elixir company today? Right. So the company is you know just fully focused on Elixir and Phoenix security. We make a, a platform which is for both bot detection. So you probably have used reCAPTCHA, which is pretty bad um, as a user and both as a developer, um, but that's like a bot detection tool. So Paraxial can replace reCAPTCHA. We also recently launched vulnerability management, which is very important for companies in regulated environments that have compliance requirements, or even if you're just interested in security for your company and you want a record of all of the scans that have happened, uh, Praxial does that now. So that's the product that we you know, sell to customers. And then we also offer security consulting services for penetration tests, secure development lifecycle, or training, just focused on Elixir and Phoenix. Um, so that's the consulting offer. Um, and those are the two main areas of the company. Yeah, I feel like security consulting is a good, a good sector to be in because a lot of times companies won't hire anyone full-time for security because... Yeah, they're often too busy trying to get features done and who's got time for security. But usually like, you know, three, four times a year, bring somebody in, do an audit, and then, uh, you know, kind of wait a little while, bring them in, uh, bring them in again, do another audit. So is that kind of what you're seeing from the consulting side is people trying to set up something quarterly or, you know, every six months and, and make sure that there's no regressions or new security issues? Yeah, a big thing that I've seen is companies already hire pen testers. Um, I used to do that um, as a past job right out of college. I would test web applications for security. Um, the problem they have is they hire a company, but they've never used Elixir before, and they don't really know the language well. So regardless of what the engagement letter says, it kind of turns into a black box test, which means the tester is looking at the application and the security of it just from the point of view of like, okay, it's a web application, I'm gonna send it requests and see how it responds, but I'm not really gonna read the source code or understand you know, what's, what's happening with Elixir and Phoenix. So that's been a really big area of demand is customers who say, you know, we have pen testers, they don't know Elixir. It seems like you specialize in this. Could you, could you come in and could we get your opinion on our situation? 
That's really cool. And then what sorts of things do you look for specifically in, a, in an Elixir application as opposed to like a you know, general black box test where you're I don't know, running burp suite or something and sending a whole bunch of malformed requests? Yeah, so with Elixir, there's just like, it's just areas of the language and the beam that are different. Um, also just knowing like what do vulnerable code patterns in Elixir look like. Um, I'll give you an example where for cross-site scripting, for example, there's a pattern in like Ruby on Rails and Django where if you are displaying text that like a user entered back to them, it's automatically escaped to prevent uh, cross-site scripting, which is a type of vulnerability where an attacker can basically cause JavaScript they wrote to be executed in your web browser. So if you go to an online shopping website, you only want JavaScript that has been authorized you know, by that website. If somebody can post a comment that says, you know, script my JavaScript here, they can then take over your account, steal your credit card. Um, it's very bad. So this is um, really handled by Phoenix automatically. There's really good guardrails to prevent this type of vulnerability. So, you know, an auditor who doesn't really know much about Elixir would look at an application, probably just grep for like the raw function, and they'd be like, okay, we're good. Let's keep going on. Um, but if you're aware of Elixir security and you've researched a little bit, you'll know that a really common cross-site scripting problem is relating to image uploads. So like a pattern that you see in some Phoenix applications is the image upload functionality will not actually check that the image being uploaded is like a PNG or a JPEG. You know, maybe the file name is like, you know, profilephoto.png, but the content type in the HTTP request is actually uh, like an HTML document. So then when that gets rendered, that's your cross-site scripting. Um, and that's just one example of how having knowledge about Elixir applications and the patterns, you know, that you typically see in them are really beneficial if you're doing an audit for the security of, of the application. Cool. I'm gonna have to drop off the call now and go and audit all my uh, image upload applications. <laughs> I don't have this. You know, it's funny when I learned about that, like the first time I learned about it, I immediately went to just a, one of the early Phoenix applications I wrote that had profile photos and I found it was vulnerable. Uh, all right. I'm going to have to chat with you after this call in that case. So I don't <laughs> and we're going to have to audit my apps. But uh, yeah, so diving into, you know, perhaps a little bit deeper, how does it, uh, how does it work? You know, what, what parts of the beam have you leveraged to really make sure that it's performant? Uh, that it's not, you know, impacting incoming requests. Because a lot of times with, you know, with uh, security tooling, it, there's usually that trade-off of, yes, you get some security, but now your application is slow or, you know, you can't have too many requests. You know, how are you leveraging the beam in order to make sure that these, these things aren't a problem? Yeah, it's, it's actually funny. A lot of vendors, like their products, they, they're like, they claim to introduce more, you know, make it more secure, but then... There, there's also this pressure for them to ship as many integrations as possible, and then they can introduce vulnerabilities that way or performance problems. So that's kind of like another area where I see focusing on Elixir as a benefit, where because that's all we do, the agent that we ship, like we understand how it works very well, and we're very aware of the performance implications. Um, so for, for one example, um, if you have a web application, let's say a login form, 
um, you probably want to do rate limiting, like one login attempt. Um, so if an IP address is doing login attempts, you want to do, say, one IP address can only do five login attempts in a certain period. If it's more than that, you know, that's clearly malicious. So what attackers can do now is proxy their HTTP traffic through a service like AWS's API Gateway. Then every HTTP request has a different IP address. So because it's one request, one IP, you bypass the rate limiting even though every IP address is in the AWS uh, like sitter range. So the way the Praxial agent you know, blocks this type of attack, it's pretty simple to describe. It just takes all the IP address ranges that belong to Amazon. And then you get a plug that says, okay, if this IP address you know, matches this range, don't allow it through. Um, so that's the kind of the problem description. The thing is, Doing this in Elixir is actually a little bit tricky because each you know, process doesn't have a shared memory space. So they have to communicate with message passing. And if you have like a gen server that stores you know, this information, you introduce like a process bottleneck. Um, the type of data structure to use is also important. It's called a Rodux try. That's pretty well covered in computer science literature. Um, you know, most, most companies are aware of that as well. But, the benefit of just knowing about Elixir is we were able to very quickly ship this design where if you have an incoming request and you're putting it through our plug, the delay is measured in microseconds. It's, it's just very fast. Um, so the performance impact to the actual user, it's not noticeable. And the implementation is you know, the best possible if you like, have an Elixir agent. Um, and that's something we're very happy with is that you're getting security but you're also not you know, getting this huge performance impact, for example. You're not getting uh, the first attempt of someone learning Elixir and like, oh yeah, we need our agent in Elixir apparently. Oh, okay, how do you do this? In apparently I need a gen server. All right, let's, let's build a gen server. That's probably good yeah, because that yeah. has a lot of potential pitfalls. And I don't, I don't fault the engineer at the other, if, let's say that a hypothetical security company, I could see that situation you're describing happening. Yeah. Um, but that's the, that's the management structure and the incentives that are there is just ship something as soon as possible because we need you know, as many integrations as possible. Um, but you know, that is just a nice thing about Praxials being focused. We're able to put a lot of thought into this and, and just ship something that's you know, high quality. So is this secret sauce or can, uh, can you tell us what you use them? I'm, I'm thinking persistent term. Yeah, exactly. I, I gave a talk about it, so it's not all very right. secret. <laughs> the secret talk. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, I could, I could see that being the approach, not data that shifts around a lot. Yeah. And it was really, it's just a really nice example of um, when to use persistent term. If, if you're not familiar with it, it's a part of Erlang where in ETS, if you have like a large, um, just like a large data structure, like imagine like a big map or something that's like 10 megabytes, every time you go into ETS and pull that map out, that's like a 10 megabyte memory copy into the process. Um, and just to be clear, this is not like an ETS query, that's very fast, but this is if you have some non-standard data structure where you're pulling the whole thing out and then you're doing operations on it, you like blow up your memory really quickly. 
So persistent term is great if you have a large data structure that has to be shared among many Elixir processes or Erlang processes. Um, the caveat is that it can't change very frequently because if you change it while, you know, let's say 100 processes are holding a reference to it, that triggers this garbage collection, which can, you know, degrade the performance of your system. It's, it's very well documented in Erlang. There's a warning label that it's not an ETS replacement. It's for that very specific use case. Yeah, I think in the I think in the docs they say if it rarely changes, but I would I would make the uh, the caveat if it never changes, put it in persistent term. That's the yeah, only exactly. Persistent term is if, if there's some data, I know for a fact that the only time it's going to change is when like the app gets deployed again, and maybe when I start the app, I I hydrate some some data in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I have a very technical question for you because it's something that I've wanted to solve uh, yes. in the past. Let's say a bot hits an app that's protected by Paraxial, right? What do you do with that request? Do you just return like a, a 400? Do you, do you return a 500? Do you kill the, the TCP connection? Because I've tried my hardest to find a way to kill the TCP connection entirely and not send anything back. And I cannot find a way to do it. <laughs> yeah, currently we just halt the connection um, because some people want that information. For example, the, the status code is like relevant. So you can see like there were this many blocked connections. So you still want information about it. Um, but I could see that that being a use case where you just kill the connection would be, would be very useful as well. What, what have you um, done so far? I'm curious. Uh, so I, I think I stumbled across an Elixir forum post. Maybe I'll find it again. We'll yeah. put it in the show notes. But uh, yeah, I think somebody said you had to make like a like a special thing that you pass, you pass either to cowboy or to, to ranch or whatever. And then that way you could attach additional uh, like data to the construct. And that would give you the ref to the, the TCP connection. I don't know. That's, that's kind of where I, where I ended up the last time I, uh, I went down this rabbit hole, but I, I never actually got the, got an answer or a solution working. So I was curious if this was a problem that you were able to solve. So yeah, we've looked at this, um, but nothing live yet for um, for dropping it. But that that might change in the future. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, sounds good. I'm curious if it's a problem that's solved. Uh, what's the other um, HTTP server that's supported by Phoenix now? Bandit. And Cowboy. And then Bandit is the new one. Yeah. Bandit. Yeah, I'm curious if maybe like Bandit attaches that as some like uh, private data in the construct, and it makes it a lot easier to uh, just kill the TCP connection all, all together. But I don't, I don't have an answer to that either, just questions. You should reach out to the, the person behind Bandit. I think they're pretty, pretty active and would probably tackle it. They seem keen. So earlier you mentioned uh, reCAPTCHA and what a terrible experience it is. And uh, I could definitely agree there. Because every time <laughs> I get one of those, like, click all the squares that have the, uh, the traffic lights, either I don't know where all the traffic lights are or the, the, the recapture doesn't know where they are because I usually get like three prompts. But uh, what are some other solutions out in the market that you compete with? And, uh, and you know, obviously that you're built for Elixir. So I would, I would agree off the bat that you're probably a more suitable solution. But what are, what are some other options out there for maybe people that use other languages? Yeah, so like recapture really nobody likes it. I would say that there's a lot of language agnostic ways you can also just defend your application. Um, everyone likes to jump to reCAPTCHA, I think just because it's popular. 
you know, but that's usually not what you need exactly. There's a lot of techniques you can do on your own. So the first I would, I would really recommend is just basic IP rate limiting, um, which seems odd, but you know, I've been in situations um, looking at companies um, when I was doing security work where they have a recaption in place, it gets bypassed and you see one IP address did, you know, 10,000 requests in like an hour and just basic rate limiting would have caught it. And it seems so simple, but, you know, in security, it, it's like the simple things, you kind of have to get them right. And it's very difficult to do that. Um, so whatever language you're in, uh, what, the first blog post I actually wrote for Praxial was on plug attack, which is a really excellent Elixir library for just doing IP rate limiting. Um, and it's open source, anyone can use it. And it's a fantastic library. Um, so even if you maybe don't need Praxial, you don't need this um, you know, paid tool, using plug attack is a fantastic way to just um, rate limit based on IP address in your web application. Um, another technique I wanna talk about, um, this is pretty well known kind of in bot detection circles is let's say you have a form for your website where customers or prospective customers can submit you know, some information like, hey, this is my name, email, this is why I'm interested in your product. And you get a bunch of spam on that form so you decide to introduce reCAPTCHA. Well, now you might be missing you know, new customers because they want to submit a request and, and maybe give you some business, but they're deterred because they can't pick all the traffic lights out, which is ridiculous. I so, love identifying bicycles, come on. Yeah, exactly. So one uh, technique that I like is create on your website uh, forms, which are hidden with CSS. So the form is not visible to a normal user, but a bot can see it um, who's like doing spam. The bot will submit the form and will notice, oh, okay, this can't be a human. This has to be a bot. So just drop the request. Um, and you can do this with a hidden field on your form, for example. Um, and you might think, you know, this technique's been around for a while. Why haven't bots kind of figured out how to bypass it? But it's, it's kind of like the economies of spam and fraud where because enough people don't do it, they don't even feel the need to adjust their bots. Um, in some cases, reCAPTCHA is so popular that the bot author just grabs, okay, here's the reCAPTCHA bypass library, put that in and let's run it and make some money. And that's all they need. Um, but when there's these other techniques that you can do to effectively you know, stop this problem without frustrating your customers. Yeah. That does seem ideal sort of it's very rare that i've personally run into a rate limit because i failed logins too many times uh it does happen like the pin code on the phone <laughs> that happens uh, trying to get my, uh, my wife's phone out of childproof mode uh, guided access like then then sometimes i get put on timeout and just have to wait but Generally, even when I've run sites where I've where I've had sort of uh, limits to how many times I can try a login, like if the limit is five times for an IP address, it's like yeah, you're never you're very rarely going to hit that as a human. And you can also do things like throttle instead of ban, which also cuts down on sort of brute force enormously on login forms. Exactly. Yeah. 
but then like you were saying with a call to action like oh i want people to sign up for this thing it's super lame to have to fill out a captcha and if you can restrict that with some some ip control sort of ip bands and cider rules that seems ideal because i don't even have to know about it and you can protect your form and everyone's mostly happy as except bot operators probably but exactly Maybe we should dive in a little bit to what a what a cider rule is because I don't know if everyone listening is maybe familiar with uh, like networking and and the terminology there. Yeah, yeah, I'm just parroting. I I know there's uh, an acronym CIDR. Yep. But otherwise, I'm I'm just thinking of the cider house rules. It's not even a book I've read, but yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll let our our resident security expert take it away here. I was gonna say it's. Audio doesn't seem like a great format to like present this information because every video you watch on on Sitter Notation has like the bit mask and it'll walk you through. Um, learning about through a podcast, I I don't think I would have been able to to figure it out. So I'll spare people like an explanation. Um, but it's it's worth learning about for sure if you're just like dealing with attacks and things and and because there's so many like good resources out there for defending against them that assumes you have this knowledge. Cool. Maybe yeah. we'll, you said you gave a talk on this. Maybe we'll add that talk to the show notes for you. Oh okay. yeah. I have an explanation in there. Okay. Perfect. All right. We'll, we'll add that to the show notes so that everybody can, uh, can get up to speed on CIDR notation. Which conf was that? It was Elixir conf, uh, America last year. I gave it remotely, but it, it's up on the, uh, should be up on the Paraxial page. Yeah. We'll have it in notes as well. So from the business side of things, I'm kind of curious, how has it been selling a premium Elixir library? There's only a few that I know about. There's OpenPro. Uh, there's an other one. I can't remember it. Oh, shoot. It was like a, like a test mutation library. And then I think there's Prax. So those are the only three that I know about like that are, that are premium Elixir library offerings. So I'm kind of curious. How's that experience been? It's been good. Um, there's also the performance monitoring companies. They, they seem to invest a lot in Elixir. Um, I'll see like marketing from them. Um, from a business perspective, it's been going very well. And I kind of attribute that to the focus on Elixir because I talk to people and they're interested not only in you know, Elixir security, but also in supporting an Elixir business, which I you know, really appreciate. They, they say it like helps the ecosystem, you know, people want to adopt Elixir at their company. And then, you know, the security team comes in and asks all these questions, like, how are you going to secure this? You know, what monitoring and tooling do you have in place? And, you know, the thing some companies do is they'll kind of reach out to the, to the big firms that just might not have the best Elixir support, but, you know, they just need something in place, but it's not ideal. So having tooling that's really built for Elixir, they've seen that as a huge benefit um, in their organization. That definitely echoes some of the sentiments I've run into with clients with regards to, for example, Oban, where engineers have been genuinely excited to sort of shift some of their work. They were using other work worker queue libraries previously. And it's like, no, Oban seems cool. And I want to support those efforts because they do want Elixir to succeed and they know it's an ecosystem and everyone wants good relationships to competent people in the ecosystem. So everyone wants to see 
dedicated elixir focused uh, software projects succeed i i think it's nice to be part of a community like elixir is not that small anymore but it's still sort of neighborly which i think is nice and it's easier to trust a company that says oh we do elixir that's what we do or we do erlang or we do the beam we're focused on on something in particular and as a company if you're putting some resources that way and paying for something you also know that it's like oh it's not being uh, sort of amortized across 50 different clients and uh, the most general solution to every problem and if i reach out for help it's not like I'm going to have to explain what a gen server is. It's just, uh, yeah. For one thing, we're a quirky ecosystem technically. Like we differ. It's not that big a difference between Python and Ruby in, in many ways. But the difference between Ruby and Elixir, once you just pop the hood a little bit, is immense. And it, it's nice to have folks that know what they're doing. It's a good thing Steven's not on the call. He'd like to differ with Ractors. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ractors. I haven't heard of, of Ractors in a little bit, so I wonder how they're how they're coming along. For the distribution of the library, are you what was it? The private hex uh, server? Are you, did you set that up? Is that how you're distributing the app or or the the library? Are you going through hex itself? Yes. So the Praxial agent is open source, um, so you can inspect it. It's a public hex repo. Um, I see that as a benefit too because it allows customers to look through the agent. What's really cool is sometimes I get the opportunity to work with people who have used Elixir from the very start, you know, so they know so much, they're able to read the source code, um, not only understand what's going on, but say, oh, have you considered, you know, doing things this way, like suggesting improvements, you know, like when, when do you get that opportunity as, as a security vendor? That's, you know, unheard of in kind of normal infosec circles. But in Elixir, being able to have that experience is, is really fantastic. Oh, that's really cool. All right, so the agent itself is, is open source. So I'm guessing you just drop in a, a key that you're allotted when you sign up and then you're off to the races. Exactly, yeah. Set up, um, being able to get set up easily is a huge deal. Um, if you've ever had to set up enterprise security products, it is not pleasant. Um, so that was a huge focus um, for the company as a whole is you know getting something that's actually nice and pleasant to to get working with quickly so you're saying it doesn't require like a whole epic <laughs> jira jira tickets and yeah no <laughs> it's not unheard of i've i've been on projects where it took weeks or months to get some piece of software set up and it did not work well at all yeah i could i could definitely echo that i mean this was like maybe nine years ago eight years ago but i was trying to set up uh like new relic in a Laravel app uh, at the company I was at at the time. And that was not an easy task because <clears throat> we were using a whole bunch of tooling. We had to integrate uh, you know, the, the, the new Relic agent in there and PHP is funny in and of itself. And I, I, like, I remember spending two weeks on it. And then at the end, the, the higher ups were like, oh, it's way too expensive to run this on every box. So we'll only run new Relic on like half the boxes. <laughs> 
You know, it's interesting you mentioned that too, because New Relic has an Elixir agent. Um, I've used it myself and was very impressed with like the quality of it. Um, they, they did a really good job with it. Yeah, this is the PHP one. So I don't know. Maybe uh, <laughs> this is the PHP one. And this is also 10 years ago, nine years ago. So I'm guessing a lot has changed since then. But I, this is the last time I remember like trying to put together like a big vendor integration and it was just so painful. So it's delightful to hear that this is, you know, you, you download the open source library, you add your, your, uh, your key and you're done. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had some integration works. I've also had my experience integrating New Relic and we had a bunch of custom stuff which needed to be tracked. So it was a lot of essentially what you would do if you wanted to integrate telemetry for Elixir, but with um, telemetry, you use the sort of open source telemetry library. And we had to do specific code for for the just integrating the New Relic agent tons of code changes just to capture everything and then tons of integration libraries to sort of I, I think they had to monkey patch python to get into like sql alchemy and django and flask we were using everything yeah <laughs> and i'm very glad to be in an ecosystem where there's like oh yeah here's the telemetry hooks use those speaking of telemetry hooks does uh paraxial emit any telemetry events can you get the you know data locally or in prometheus or, or whatever to show how many bot attacks are happening over time so all of that information just goes to the back end um so it's all kind of self-contained it's like you install the agent you set up your site in the web interface and then all the data flows there so you have information about you know how many ip addresses how many requests were allowed through block there's kind of like a nice summary overview page um, another useful feature, which I always wanted from like every tool like this is just a tail, which is just like the last 500 HTTP requests or so you can just get that information directly in, in the web interface. So you can like debug things or just see, you know, what's, what information is coming through. Oh, that's really cool. So you kind of take care of the entire, the entire thing. Yeah. So it's the Elixir library, but then also the backend, the reporting and analysis, you know, your vulnerability scanning information, things that you want in a security platform. All right, sweet. I think that's about time for us. But before we wrap up, where can people read more about this solution? So the Praxial website um, is where we post everything. There's also the blog, which includes articles just in general about Elixir and Phoenix security. So even if you're not using Paraxial, you can learn about the tools in the ecosystem or vulnerabilities that might affect your applications. Also, if you're interested in just reaching out to me, my email is michael at Paraxial.io. If you're a listener of this podcast, I would be happy to chat with you. So hope to hear from some listeners soon. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, and I want to shout out genserver.social, which is a great community of people. Yeah, very nice. The Fediverse growing strong. Also very classy to to actually be sharing that know-how on the blog. That's that's a nice way of doing it and sharing a lot about how you're doing these things. Like security can sometimes be secretive and that's not that's not the fun way of doing it. I think you're also giving a training, is that right? Yes. Coming. So 
at ElixirConf 2023. Um, it's in Lisbon, but it will be a fully remote training. So that'll be linked in the show notes. It's for Elixir and Phoenix security. So if you work on a Phoenix application for a business that you know handles customer data, which I feel like is a lot of listeners of this show, and you're interested in learning more about security, I'll be giving that training um, at the next ElixirConf EU. Now that's a good pitch. If you have customers, this one's for you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael, for coming on the show and sharing all this interesting stuff on security. We will be back with another episode sometime soon. Uh, Thank you, Alex, for joining me. And thank you to our sponsors, Roxio, and I guess Underjordio. <laughs> no, Underjord.io and Grox.io. Roxio is career fuel for programmers, and Underjord is a giant old mess of mine. Uh, check it out if you need um, consulting services, Elixir recruitment, or a CTO community. That's, that's an offering right there. All right. Talk to you next time.